Well, every year, one of the leading causes of death in the U.S., really worldwide, is the flu virus. It's amazing to think about because we normally categorize the flu as merely annoying, not life-threatening. But each year, millions are infected and almost 500,000 people die from the flu. A hundred years ago was the worst flu outbreak ever. The Spanish flu of 1918 killed between 50 and 100 million people. At the time, that was about 5% of the world's population. It's amazing to think about something so small can so easily kill us and avoid eradication. In the ancient world, before advances in biology, they really didn't know what the flu was. They didn't know the cause or the workings of it. They didn't know it was a virus. They didn't really know what a virus even was. Instead, flu outbreaks were thought to coincide with astrological events. But especially with the the development of the microscope, the flu began to be understood, especially at a cellular level. Scientists began to understand what this disease was, how it multiplied, how it attacked the body, how the body defended itself. And more importantly, they understood how it spread. So for the first time, they could give meaningful advice on how to avoid getting the flu in the first place. So now we know if you want to avoid the flu, it has nothing to do with your zodiac sign. Instead, just wash your hands. Really, the most effective way the flu virus transmits is through direct contact. So if you shake hands with someone who just sneezed, then a few minutes later you innocently scratch your eye or or wipe your mouth, well, now you're infected. The eyes, nose, and mouth are the primary entry points for the flu virus. So for real, just washing your hands or using hand sanitizer during flu season, it's a simple, practical, effective way to not get infected. Now, I bring this up just to make a simple point that the better you understand how a disease works, how it infects us, how it harms us, and how it spreads, the better you can stop it and even prevent it. And it's the exact same way with the disease, so to speak, of sin. Like a deadly virus, sin takes a life of its own in its host. It infects us, spreads, harms us, makes us miserable. And like the flu, though most are lulled into thinking it's merely an annoyance, sin is deadly. It claims the lives of millions every year, leading to an eternal death. We worry a lot about our bodies, want to keep them free from disease. We should worry even more about our souls. Therefore, the more we understand our sin problem, the more we know how it works and how it spreads, the better we'll be able to stop and even prevent the sin in our lives. And that's what we want to learn this morning, how to do that. And so turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Not long ago, we started through James. And last week, we covered an important passage about the origin of the sin in our lives. In the context of James 1, he's writing to encourage Christians to endure the trials they're going through with joy. These various trials are designed by God not to destroy them, but to test and to prove their faith, to make them more like Christ. So they should count their trials joy because of what God is doing through them. But some were not so joyful. They were failing the test and falling into sin. And that's because trials often come with temptations. 
And it appears some were starting to blame God for this. Some were blaming God for their temptations, their sins, and all the resulting ruin in their life. But no, James says, God is not the source of your temptations or the sin in your life. Verse 13, we we read last week, James 1, verse 13. He says, let no one say when he was tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God is never the agent of temptation. He may sovereignly allow it as we learn, but he is not the tempter. He wants his children to overcome. So then where do our temptations come from? Who is to blame for the sin in our lives? And the answer we found is you, me, us. We are, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We are to blame. For present within us is the wicked flesh, which comes with sinful desires. Here, James exposes the pathology of sin. As we found, it starts with desire. After the fall, our very natures are plagued with evil desires. These are a part of you. And these desires that within you desperately want you to sin. And next comes deception, where when an object of desire presents itself, your own flesh wants you to go after it. Your flesh deceives you into thinking this is the right way to go, but this is not the right way. It leads only to disobedience. When your inner desires combine with temptation and you don't flee, well, sin results. Sin is birthed. But sin quickly takes on a life of its own and brings ruin in your life. And the end of the way of sin is only death. So desire, deception, disobedience, death. This is the life cycle of the disease of sin, you could say. This is how it works. This is how it breeds, how it infects us, how it spreads, how it harms us. And like we learned that last week, this is just so important to know, isn't it? That you can't hope to overcome the sin in your life and all the the damage it does if you don't even know how it works, how it affects you, how it infects you. And so James cuts us open and shows how God is not to blame for our sin and not even Satan is to blame, but we are our own sinful lusts of the flesh. Now, at this point, we could just move on. Hey, lesson learned. Good lesson. That's great. Let's move on. We've learned how sin arises and carries us away. That's all good. What's next? But do you wonder, before we move on, after learning all that, well, okay, now how do we stop that? How do we prevent our lust of the flesh from carrying us away? Wouldn't you want to know that as well? I'm talking the practical steps. Like with the flu virus, we, we've learned how it works. And so now we have the very practical and effective application. Just wash your hands. Well, similarly, when it comes to sin, okay, now we know we are to blame. Our own nature is to blame. So what are we supposed to do about that? How can we stop that? How do we prevent it from rising up within us and carrying us away? It's been said that you must kill your sin lest it kill you. 
So how do we do that? Well, that's what we aim to discover this morning. Today we have planned a little follow-up message to what we learned last week, and we really want to flesh out the application to last time. Okay, God is not to blame for our temptation and our sin. We are, but now what are we supposed to do about that? James does not answer that question. That's not his intention or concern in chapter 1 here. He doesn't elaborate on the practical steps to fighting the sin that lives within. But I believe this is just so important that it's worth a week to springboard off of James and search the scriptures for the answers of how we are to now fight and wage war against the sin that resides within us. Now that we've learned how sin works, how can we stop it? How can we prevent it? That's what we're going to find out this morning. And like I said, it doesn't come from James chapter 1, but it is the concern of Paul and his letter to the Romans. So let's springboard now over to Romans chapter 6. So turn there. This is really where we're going to spend our time this morning, Romans 6, 7, and 8. We have as our goal practical application. But first, we need to take a bit further the lesson we learned last week and just even more understand how sin really breeds in our own hearts before we can give the prognosis of what to do about it. And Romans helps us with that. In the first five chapters, Paul is all about establishing justification by faith. We are wrong with God because of our sin. We've fallen short. We're unrighteous and under his wrath. That's a problem because he requires perfect righteousness for us to be in his presence. We fall short. But the glory of the gospel of Jesus is that we can be made perfectly righteous and justified by grace through faith. That God offers to give us the righteousness we need to be in his presence as a gift. And we receive that gift by faith in Christ, the one who died and rose for us. And so when you trust in Christ, God justifies you. He forgives you all your sin and makes you perfectly righteous. That's good news. That's the gospel. This justification by faith brings us peace with God. And that's the first five chapters of Romans. But after that, some questions linger. Okay, so we come to faith in Christ. We're justified. We're made righteous. But we don't always act righteous. So what gives? I mean, we're still sinners after being saved. So how do we understand that? How does justification change our lives here and now, like before we get to heaven? And this is Paul's concern in Romans 6 through 8, where he moves from talking about justification to talking about sanctification. And we're going to cover lots of ground here. But join me in verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? At the end of chapter 5, Paul made the point that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so some might think, okay, so we just believe in Jesus, we're justified, and grace covers it all, so I guess we can do whatever we want now. But no, not 
so fast. It's not the picture of the true believer. And why not? Well, the point he makes in chapter 6 is, how shall we who have died to sin still live in it? You see, yes, you are still a sinner after believing in Christ, but something has changed. Something's different about you. What is it? Well, you have died to sin. Verses 3 and 4 uses baptism as an analogy or word picture. And through our union to Christ, we've died to sin and we've been raised to new life. So there's something new about us now, and we are to live in this newness. Now keep reading verse 5. He says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So what really happened to us in salvation? What changed? It's true. We have not yet escaped sin's presence. Sin is still present within us, but the change is that we're no longer enslaved to it. That's what's different. Sin is no longer our master. Sin is no longer the ruling principle in our lives. We are freed from sin's chains and now able to walk in the newness of life given to us. So that sounds good. In justification, we're freed from sin's penalty. And in regeneration, we're freed from sin's power over us. That's good. It's no longer our master. And and next, in verses 8 through 10, Paul goes on to share how one day we will even be free from sin's very presence. That's glorification, when we will live with Christ and every last trace of sin in our lives will be finally eradicated. But that's future. That's, that's glory. That's not right now. That, that day is not today, right? But the point is this, that we are to live like it is. We are to live right now as if we are those heavenly citizens, because, because we are. This is the aim of the Christian life, to live right now as a heavenly citizen. So he says in verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so get this, this is our new position in Christ. This is the starting point for fighting sin. Yeah, this isn't true in our daily practice, but in our position, this is true that you are dead to sin. You are alive in Christ. And this this becomes the basis of our mission to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. How do we do that? We're still getting there. But Paul helps with the command in verse 12. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master 
over you. For you're not under law, but under grace. Now, sometimes you don't feel very dead to sin, right? But you are. In Christ, you are. And the point is to live like it. Do not let sin reign in your body so that you obey its lusts. Now, that's a key verse. Go back, put your eyes back on verse 12. Spend a little time looking at verse 12. What do we learn from that verse already? One, the principle of sin still resides in our mortal bodies. Two, sin comes with lusts, desires. And three, we're able to obey these desires, and that leads to unrighteousness. But four, we're also able to deny these desires, and that leads to righteousness. You know, sometimes we blow it. We fall into sin. But sin's no longer master over you. So stop listening to it. Sin is personified in these verses as a a wicked slave master in contrast to God. And sin wants to capture your body and use it for unrighteousness. Sin used to be your master. And back then, before salvation, you had no choice. You were just carried away. But now we have a new master, which means we have the ability to deny sin. It no longer reigns over us, so deny sin. As Paul continues, he basically says, you know, what did sin get you? Back when you lived under your old master, it took your body at will and used it for all sorts of unrighteousness. How did that work out for you? Not so good. The master of sin only brings about ruin and hardship and and pain and loss Sin is not a good master. It wants to see you suffer and die. There's a better way, though. And he jumped down to verse 22. He says, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. And the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, this is what's changed. Again, we're freed from sin. We're enslaved to God. We still have sin present within us. Yes. But God is our master now. He's a good master. He gives eternal life to us as a free gift. So as Paul said back in verse 19, in light of what God has done for you, now it's time for you to present your members, your body, as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. It's time to not let sin, but God, have reign over your life and use it for righteousness. I mean, hasn't sin done enough? Hasn't sin ruled you enough and messed things up in your life enough? So now, Christian, it's time for God to reign and rule over your life and use your body, your, your very being for his purposes and his righteousness. And that's only to your benefit. So hopefully starting to make some sense. You're seeing where we're going here, that what's changed. You're freed from sin. You're enslaved to God. This is to your benefit. So start living like it. Now, the problem with this though is 
That's way easier said than done. That can be really hard to do sometimes. Why? Well, because even though we're no longer enslaved to sin, that the principle of sin still resides within us, and it can be a powerful force. And this brings us to Romans chapter 7. We'll skip over the first part of the chapter where Paul talks about law versus grace. As good as that is, we'll have to save that for another time. But after arguing that the law of God is not to blame for our sin, Paul goes on to show that we are, just like James, we are to blame our own sinful lusts. And so look at verse 14, Romans 7, verse 14. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. What you have to realize with these verses is that Paul is relating here his own personal experience with indwelling sin. God's laws are good. They're not the problem. We're the problem. The problem is indwelling sin. And sometimes it carries us away, right? Isn't that what James said back in James 1? We learned last week, it's like a fish that sees that bait dangling in front of it, and its lusts, its desires are enticed, wanting it to go after. It ignores the dangers. And once it takes it, it's hooked and then carried away. And, and likewise, sin will entice you and, and take you places you don't want to go. And this is the problem, even for true believers, is that when you don't deny your flesh and flee temptation, then sin takes over. You're no longer enslaved to it, but when you succumb to temptation, sin, just for the moment, it, it steps back into the driver's seat and takes over. Now it's going gonna, it's gonna to drive you someplace you don't want to go. You find yourself then doing the very things you hate, and you wonder, how did I get here? This is the struggle between the new self and the old self, the spirit and the flesh, the inner man and the outer man. So he says, verse 18, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin, which dwells in me. Here Paul introduces the flesh which does not merely refer to our mortal bodies, but it includes our bodies. And all you can think of the flesh as the inherent weakness of humanity. The flesh is weak and therefore prone to sin. In fact, the flesh is so weak that after the fall, our flesh was easily captured and enslaved by sin and Satan. And so Paul uses this word often to refer to our fallen human nature, which is oriented away from God. We still have the flesh, although it's no longer enslaved to sin. And that's, that's the problem after our new birth. 
Even after salvation, we're given a new nature, but the flesh is not eradicated. And so do you know what that means? It means that the Christian experience is, by definition, schizophrenic. That there are two desires living within us, two forces within us, and they're at odds with one another. There's the flesh, which is pumping out these sinful desires, like a spoiled well. And then there's the spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which is now producing new desires, godly desires. It's just like Paul said in Galatians 5, 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. See, the flesh and the spirit, they both come with their own sets of desires. And you want to do what is right, I trust. In your spirit, you want to go down God's ways. Our spirit is willing. The flesh is so weak. And this is the inherent struggle in the Christian life where you should be able to say with Paul that the good that I want to do, I don't do. I end up practicing the very thing I hate. This is the plea of anyone who's ever been hooked by the lust of the flesh. Does this resonate with you? It should. Because this struggle is common to all true Christians, even the Apostle Paul. In fact, this is a sure way to identify the false believer that they don't struggle They don't experience this struggle, which means most likely there's no newness within them. What changes that salvation? Before you have the sinful flesh and it's pumping out these sinful desires. After you still have the flesh and it's still pumping out sinful desires. But the difference is now you have new life implanted in you. At the new birth, you're given a new heart empowered by the Holy Spirit, which is now producing a second set of desires, godly desires. And now in your spirit, you want to do what is right. You desire to obey God. You don't always do that because sometimes you you fall, you let sin take the driver's seat, but you struggle. You're in the struggle. You feel the struggle against the flesh now. But if you're listening to me and you have no idea what I'm talking about, you've never experienced this type of internal struggle against the flesh, you need to examine your heart because there's a good chance you've never been born again. This is common to all. It means you're alive. And now that the spirit is is doing its job, fighting and wrestling the flesh. Now, continuing on verse 21, he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Here he's really further explaining our inner warfare. The battle lines are drawn. You've got the law of God with the outer man on the one, or rather the inner man on the one side and the law of sin with the outer man or the flesh on the other side. 
and they completely oppose one another. And they engage in a wrestling match for the rest of your lives. But if you lay down arms, and if you lower your guard, and if you take your mind out of this battle, your flesh will quickly overpower your spirit, and it will drag you back into sin. Your flesh will recapture you and temporarily take you prisoner again. And this is the nature of of our internal struggle for the rest of your life until glorification when all this changes. But if this sounds exhausting or exasperating, it, it, it kind of is, which is why Paul can't help but cry out. And he does that in the next verse, verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? He can't help it. He can't help but crying out here, lamenting the fact that we're still in this fallen condition. And his condition, that's our condition. And so we long for the day when we'll finally be free from our flesh. At salvation, the inner man is renewed. The outer man is still dead. And we long for resurrection, the day of resurrection, when the outer man is renewed as well, and sin is finally eradicated in our being. And thankfully, we know that day is coming. Thanks to the Lord Jesus, who won the victory over sin. And so Paul says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. After, after the plea of exasperation, we find the encouragement. We've got to bring it back to Christ. He won the battle for us. And he also reminds us in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The lifelong struggle with indwelling sin can be discouraging, especially when you lose maybe like a string of battles. It can be discouraging. But that's when you need to remember your position in Christ, that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus that by him we're saved from the wrath of God. And one day he's going to set us free from the body of this death. These truths are meant to encourage you. Like we all sin, we fall short. That, that will to a measure discourage you and bring guilt back into your life. But this is when we, we have to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. Although we're in the battle, he's, he's won the war. That's our comfort. That's our hope and encouragement that we are justified. That doesn't give us an excuse to sin, but it does deal with all our sin. And it encourages us to press on and and stay in the fight against sin all the more. All right, I hope you're still with me. I know this is kind of a whirlwind. We're covering a lot of ground, but what are we doing here? We're taking further the pathology of sin that we learned from James. We're we're learning more about the disease of sin, how it works, how it spreads in our lives, that we can get to the application of how to stop it, how to prevent it. But you really have to understand how sin works in your own heart before we can give that prognosis. But I think now we're ready. We're ready to get to that. And it comes in Romans 8. So let's keep going. Romans 8. Here, Paul tells us how we can win this civil war within us. And we find there's an X factor in this fight, a secret weapon given to us to overcome. 
Do you know what it is? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Our own spirit has been made alive in Christ and now desires to obey God, but the flesh is still so weak and easily overpowers us. But God has given us his Holy Spirit to strengthen our spirit that we might overcome and win all those little battles against temptation. And getting into Romans 8, what's so interesting is that throughout Romans 1 through 7, the first seven chapters, Paul mentioned the Holy Spirit once. But now in Romans 8, he mentions the Holy Spirit over 20 times. This is when the Holy Spirit takes center stage. In verses 2 through 4, we learn it's the Spirit who sets us free from the law of sin and death. It's the Spirit who unites us to Christ. It's the Spirit who enables us to walk in God's ways. And more specifically, it's the Spirit who helps us kill the flesh. Look at verse 12. He says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This is it. We are under obligation. If you're truly saved and born again and given the Holy Spirit, you're under obligation now to live by the Spirit. And you live by the Spirit by what? By putting to death the deeds of the body. This is what you must do now. Thanatao, to kill. You have to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians 5.24. Be killing your sin daily, lest it kill you. But understand, you can't do this alone. You don't have the power. Only by the power of the Spirit can you put to death the deeds of the body. This is described as us being led by the Spirit, so that we are following the Spirit. That's your only hope of winning the war against sin that lives within. God has given us the power we need. Sin once was our master, and it took our bodies at will and used them for unrighteousness, but now we're free to sin. We're enslaved to God. We're given His Spirit, and as we are led by His Spirit, He uses our bodies now for righteousness. We bear the fruit of the Spirit. And this is all to God's glory and our own benefit. This is to our joy. It's just like Paul said in Galatians 5.16, that if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You've got all those desires in your flesh. You still have them. You will. But if you walk by the Spirit, you won't carry them out. So this is our answer. Walking by the Spirit's power. That's the X factor. That's the answer to winning the war within. We've learned how the disease of sin spreads, how it infects us, how it carries us away. And we've also learned how, how to beat it. This is our answer. Walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Live according to the Spirit's power. 
And so now with this understanding, I think we can finally approach that practical application. And even in hearing this, you might be wondering, okay, well, how do I even do that? How do you walk by the Spirit? How are we led by the Spirit? What does it mean to live according to the Spirit? And the answer, to, to keep it simple for you, is, is this. The application, renew your mind. Renew your mind. That's, that's the answer. This is our part. This is the, the grand application we've been working up to. This is what God has given you to do to overcome your sin. Renew your mind. Now, I, I still have to connect the dots a little bit here so you understand what this means, how to do it. Back in Romans 8, verse 5, Paul said that those in the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those in the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And he established an important principle that your ways are determined by your thinking. Wherever your mind goes, your actions are soon to follow. Your mind controls you. Do you believe in mind control? We typically associate that with, you know, science fiction films. But the Bible says mind control is very real. Now you can't control others. You can't control objects. But you can very much control yourself. Your mind controls your body. And if you set your mind on things of the flesh, where do you think your body's going to go? But if you set your mind on things of the spirit, righteousness will result. And what's interesting is, is that science seems to be catching up to scripture. We've learned that if you think a certain way long enough, neural pathways are formed in the brain and they lead to behavior, habits. That's how habits are formed. Thinking determines action. And so after salvation, if you want to transform how you live, if you want to be transformed, you have to transform how you think. And so the point is this, after we've spent all that time learning about the pathology of sin, how the disease of sin works, we've discovered now that the battle against sin is fought and won, not in your body, but in your mind. Or to put it another way, you must wage war against sin, not in your deeds, but in your desires. You must wage this war at the level of your desires. Most Christians don't know this. They don't know better. And they, they try and fight sin, but they focus entirely on their deeds, on their actions. And they say to themselves, just stop doing that. Just knock that off. Stop sinning. Stop lusting. Stop having an outburst of anger. Stop coveting. Stop getting drunk, whatever it is. And to them, the Christian life is just all about trying really hard to keep this list of rules. And they've totally missed it. They've missed the battlefield. The battle is not with your deeds. It's with your desires. Because one produces the other. And the problem is your sinful flesh is pumping out these evil desires. It's not going to stop. And if you want to overcome, though, you have to do something about that. You know, for a couple of weeks now, we've had ants in our kitchen, but not like the trail, just a few. They're scouts. There's like one here, two there. Just one by one, they come. 
And we kill them one at a time, but they just keep coming. It's been weeks. And until we trace it back and find where they're coming from and do something about that, they're just going to keep coming. And likewise, when it comes to your sins, you've got to trace them back to the source. And your own sinful flesh is that source. And you've got to do something about that. What can you do? Well, how about you starve the desires of the flesh, which lead you astray, and contrary, feed the desires of the spirit, which lead you to God? How do you do that? Renew your mind. Renew your mind. After Romans 8, Paul spends Romans 9 through 11 talking about the future of Israel's salvation. It's important stuff. But then you get to chapter 12. In Romans 12, Paul gets to his own application. This is the application to the book of Romans. Starts in chapter 12, 12 through 16. That's the application. And after everything he's taught, turn there, by the way, Romans 12. After all of his teaching, guess what he mentions first as the application to Romans? Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, therefore, that's a big therefore. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by, by what? By the renewing of your mind, so that you will prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice the dichotomy here again between your body and your mind. You are commanded to present your bodies to God, your your whole lives up as an offering of worship. And you do that by being transformed. And you do that by renewing, not your body, but your mind. You see, before salvation, your outer man was dead. Your flesh was dead. Your body was dead in sin. And your inner man was dead as well. You were dead outside, dead inside. You come to salvation, your outer man still dead, but your inner man is made alive. Your inner self, your spirit. New life is birthed in you, but it starts off in seedling form. It's a little sapling. It needs to grow. It needs to develop. It needs to be transformed. You are continually transformed. And that happens by the constant daily feeding or renewing of your mind. Paul made the exact same point over in Ephesians 4. Let me just read for you Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, just to reinforce this. Ephesians 4, 22, where he said that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And he says, and, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You see, at salvation, you have put off the old self and you have put on the new self. But your old ways, those lusts of deceit, they have a way of sticking around and making things hard. 
And so now you want to live according to your new self. And if you're going to do that, the command is the same to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Like we said earlier, wherever you think, wherever you look, that's where you're going to go. Your thinking leads, determines your actions. So renew your mind. That's how you starve the lust of the flesh. And that's how you feed the lusts of the spirit, the desires of the spirit. That's how you fight indwelling sin. This is the application. It's simple. Just take that away. So simple. Renew your mind daily, every moment. And now to finish, to get even more practical, we can go from application to implementation. If the application to fighting the disease of sin is to renew your mind, the implementation is to fill your mind daily with God's truth. That's what you actually do to do this. You fill your mind daily with God's truth. That's how the Spirit leads us. Remember, the Spirit is the key here. He is the one who leads us to overcome and makes us bear fruit. We can't make a tree bear fruit. We don't have that power. That's what we need to do. We need to bear this fruit. We don't have that power. That's the Spirit's job. But we can water the tree. And that is precisely the work that God has given us to do. Water the tree. Water your mind. Do you want to avoid the flu? Wash your hands. Do you want to avoid sin? Wash your mind. Wash your mind with the water of God's word. It's simple. And this explains the prognosis in scripture. It's all, it's the same everywhere. The same prognosis, like 1 Peter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Or Colossians 1, or 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above above, not on the things that are on earth. And then he says down in verse 16, you do that by letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Psalm 119 verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Romans chapter 13 verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in accordance with its lusts. That's how you do it. This is how you starve the flesh and renew your mind, put on Christ. You know, if you ever wind up in our biblical counseling office with us, you'll typically receive some homework in the form of Bible reading. And some people might resent that and think, yeah, okay, just reading the Bible is going to fix all my problems. Yeah, right. And look, no, reading the Bible is not going to make all your problems go away, but but don't you get it? This is how God changes your thinking over time. And if you change your thinking, you're going to start changing your doing. And when you start changing your doing, life's messes have a way of starting to clean up. And imagine a guy coming into counseling because he's really struggling with mental lust. I would start by asking him about his life 
and his habits. Soon I would find he's not setting his mind on things above. He's not spiritually minded at all. Apart from Sunday mornings, he's not feeding on the, the pure milk of the word, on spiritual truth. Instead, his mind is just saturated by the things of the world. He's obsessed with internet culture, worldly shows, and music, all of which fill him with a worldview that's totally opposed to God. So in a word, he's just super worldly. So here's what's happening to this guy in his struggle. At some point, temptation arises like it does for everyone. Maybe he sees someone attractive, and so there's the temptation to lust. Now, you put together everything we've learned in the past couple weeks. What's happening on the inside? In that moment, the desires of his flesh are enticed, and they want him to to go after that, to, to follow that thought. So it goes with all of our flesh. But at the same time, if he's a true believer, he's got the Holy Spirit within, who's also producing godly desires, desires which say, no, run, flee, pursue purity to the glory of God. And so there's two desires within him in that moment. But here's the problem. By his daily habits, he's been feeding and watering and cultivating the lusts of his flesh. They're really strong. But he's been neglecting and starving the desires of the Spirit. And they're weak. He's not been renewing his mind. He's the opposite of Romans 12 too. He's not being transformed. He's being conformed to the world. And so the outcome is that the desires of his flesh, they are way stronger than the desires of his spirit. And so when the temptation comes, I'll tell you what's going to happen. The battle will be short and he will fall quickly. He will take the bait. He will get carried away by the lust and the deceit within and into sin. This is how it works. Every single time, every single temptation, every single sin works the same way every time. And every time there's a fresh battle between the spirit and the flesh. And do you want to win? Well, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to foster and water and cultivate the desires of the spirit within you. And you do that by saturating your mind with the word like a sponge. And this takes many forms. Read your Bible. That's why. This is one of the main reasons we just read the Bible a lot. It's renewing your mind. It's not a chore. It's renewing your mind. Ponder the splendor of Christ. Listen to sermons which expound the glory of God. Meditate on the writings of godly men who teach the word. Memorize key scriptures. Listen to Christ's exalting music. That's a a big one. Also, go to church. You realize that three times a week, your local church, that's us, we offer three times, three intensive times of renewing your mind by the teaching and preaching of the word. And the spirit works mightily through the word preached to transform people. So you know what? Show up. Also, later when we introduce some small groups, get involved. That is prime time for helping one another renew our minds. We need that together. So be involved and then pray. Pray fervently that the Spirit would do His work, that He would take your body and use it for righteousness and acceptable 
sacrifice of worship to God. This is how he leads you. This is how you win the war within. This is what God has given you to do that, that you might be pleasing to him. And it's all, it's all to your benefit. This is good for you. So just set your mind on Christ. All your sin won't go away, but you will be shown up, armed, equipped, and ready to battle. And by God's grace, you will overcome and you will grow. And thankfully, this fight won't last forever. If you endure, the day will come, as Paul said back in Romans 8, 11, that the God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells within you. Now, life awaits. We will be freed from the body of this death. But you have to press on and keep up the good fight of the faith against indwelling sin. As encouragement, remember, the war is over. Jesus already won the war against sin. But he calls us to still daily do battle, to resist temptation, to overcome sin, just like he did, that we might be conformed to his image, that we might honor and glorify God. So let's do that. Let's do that together, all the while giving thanks to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we pray to you this this morning and praise you for your word, which transforms us. You have given us your word. Christ himself being the living word, you've given us the mind of Christ that it might richly dwell within us and renew us and transform us. You've done the work, Lord. It's it's to your glory. Salvation is yours alone. and, And though you call us to partake in sanctification, our job is so simple just to fill us to water us in our minds. And by that, your spirit takes over and and produces the fruit we need uh, to, to honor you and to be blessed. This is all by your design. It's all for our good and your glory, Lord. I pray you just, you convict us this morning and, and you encourage us. We need the truth. First, we need to learn how we work, how our bodies work, how our sin works, how our mind works. And your word is so full of wisdom that the world still hasn't caught up to. But I pray we take this wisdom and, and run with it, understanding now the enemy better. Now we know how to overcome, Lord. Convict us to change our ways, to change our habits, to start renewing our minds daily in so many forms. As we do so, we will be filled with the truth and, and we will be led by the Spirit. We will start winning more of those battles against sin. We will be sanctified. We will be blessed and you will be glorified. So help us, Lord. We trust you. We thank you for the ultimate victory and let us press on until that day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.